Welcome to this audio recording by the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. We are a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to promoting public awareness of global issues and the ways in which they affect the Dallas-Fort Worth region. Become a member today at dfwworld.org and help us connect North Texas with the world. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone LLP. We hope you enjoy it. And good evening. Thank you very much for coming. And I'm very thrilled to be in Dallas. And thank you very much for the World Affairs Council and the Crawl Collection. Um, I'm here, um, and first of all, to talk about my book, The Lake with No Name. And I think it's only fair that um, we go back to Tiananmen um, at the 20th anniversary just upon us. And not only to look at what happened, clearly my book was the memoir of that time, but also perhaps we can spend some time and to look at what has happened since and, and maybe have some time to debate the legacy of Tiananmen, if there's any, and to look at China and its development in the future. Um, as in that lovely introduction, and Jim had and said that I grew up in um, a labor camp with my parents, and I was sent there, I think, mostly because my parents were sent there by Mao and to be re-educated because they were intellectuals. And that it was a term used at, in the Cultural Revolution for anyone who's had, for example, a college degree. Um, I spent about three years in the remote mountain region of Sichuan province with my parents. And under very uh, atrocious living conditions. Um, afterwards, I went back to Beijing. My mother took my sister and I back to Beijing, while my father had to go back to Shanghai, where he was born and where he grew up. Because in China, we had a hukou system. That meant um, a permission that you have from the government to live in a place. And normally, one has to live and work in the place one is born. So my father, although had gone to university in Beijing, met my mother there and got married, had children, and he was not allowed to live in Beijing. It took him 12 years to gain permission from the government to move to Beijing and to live with us. And after that 12 years had passed, luckily, Mao Zedong died. He died in 1976. After he died, Deng Xiaoping came to power, who wisely reinstated universities. Universities were closed in, in the Cultural Revolution that began in 1966 for 10 years, because Mao had deemed university higher education being unnecessary and anti-revolutionary. So the use of China was sent to farms, to people's communes to be taught by peasants and learn to be farmhands. Um, after universities were reinstated, um, the educational system went back into its normal operational mode. So I was able to go to Peking University in the 1980s. And during that time, I was 
very fortunate um, to, met, to have met a lot of people who were highly involved in the student democracy movement. Um, before 1989, um, China had gone through two periods, which you might not be aware of. And in the early 1980s, China had gone through a relatively liberating period of time. And from 1980 to 1986, and there was a rapid economic development in the very first stage and the brand sort of open door policy that was um, introduced by Deng Xiaoping. And at that same time, there was also political liberation the students were able to debate certain ideas that we found fascinating and novel that we were able to read from newly translated for foreign and Western literatures. And these ideas included democracy, liberty, and freedom. Um, but in 1986, the, the chairman of the Communist Party by the name of Hu Yaobang, who was sympathetic to the students and debate and, and, and democracy movement at that level um, was uh, stripped of his position and put under house arrest. And when that happened, China came into a relatively repressive period when all the debate had to go underground and which caused a lot of tension and that built up till the 1989, spring of 1989, when Hu Yaobang and expectedly died of a heart attack. And that, as you all remember, was the event that triggered Tiananmen Square demonstrations. And the students wanted to go out to the street and demanded that they would be allowed to his funeral to say goodbye to someone who was sympathetic to the students. When that demand was refused, the students took to the streets and it developed into a massive demonstration. And I was at Peking University at the time. I took part in the movement with lots of my friends, um, who some of them became very prominent in the movement and became student leaders and led hunger strikes, for example, um, throughout the seven and a half weeks of the Tiananmen movement. Um, when June 4th came, the tanks rode into Beijing and the army opened fire on the students, the movement was crashed. And after that, Beijing came under martial law and the university campuses were sealed off. And they had, there was a lot of arrests. There were executions. And it became a very dangerous place. And I had, before the Tiananmen event earned a scholarship from the U.S. to continue my graduate studies. Um, so I was able to get my passport after I had been in hiding in the countryside for about a week. And once I had received my passport, I um, got my visa from the U.S. consulate and left China on 2nd of August and to America. And I remember clearly and still today, when I arrived in Williamsburg and I stood on the campus of William Mary, it was very quiet. It was an amazing and liberating feeling and to be standing in a place where I realized for the first time in my life that no one was watching me 
and no one was going to report the things that I said. Um, if I could, I would very much like at this time to read a very small passage from my book, and then I'd be happy to open up to the floor uh, to answer your questions. And Lake with no name, um, I had decided to begin the book with actually returning to China. When I left China in 1989, I remember walking through the gate at Beijing Capital Airport and turning back to look at my parents for, I thought, probably the last time. I had said to myself that I would never return to this country. Um, unfortunately, or fortunately for me, seven years later, I did return. I was then the professor uh, at business school in University of Minnesota. I was invited to teach the first MBA students in Beijing. And when I returned to Beijing, and I realized, and I was absolutely shocked at how much the city had transformed. I was sitting in the taxi with my parents I didn't realize we were actually close to home because I couldn't recognize any of the streets. The streets that I had remembered had disappeared and they've been replaced by high rises and highways and flyovers. Um, and I have since returned back to China every year. And every time I go, I'm amazed at how much China changed and how much it improves. And it gives me sometimes a very nostalgic feeling. And when I go to Tiananmen, I see only tourists. And I see happy faces, people, young people who have not a single idea of what had happened there 20 years ago. Um, at other times, I feel absolute joy that the Chinese people are now living in prosperity, wealth, and happy very happy lives, and they stroll along Tiananmen Square with their children, with grandparents. I think in some ways that, that was the vision that we wanted 20 years ago. So this passage that I'd like to read is from that first time that I returned to China in 1996. Sitting in the rickshaw, I was so overwhelmed that I did not say anything all the way around the square which looked serene under the quiet afternoon sun. There must have been many thousands of people there, but to me, Tiananmen Square looked empty. This was not what I had remembered. Tiananmen was a battlefield in the summer seven years before, crowded with people, the young people of China wearing their blood on their sleeves, hairbands, and in their eyes. Flags leaped in the wind, where have they all gone, those 18-year-old boys and girls? Where are they now? I had not set foot on this sacred ground since the last time I came as a student guard on 2nd of June, 1989. Every step I took brought back memories and long-forgotten emotions of comradeship, tension, and fear. I walked further inside, climbing the monument to the people's heroes, the obelisk at the center of the square. Around the base of the monument were stone carvings of scenes from Chinese history, the Boxer Uprising, the Opium War, the anti-Japanese invasion, and the Civil War. 
The monument was built in 1958 to symbolize the resistance of ordinary people to feudal powers and foreign colonization. In 1989, the students of Beijing found it particularly fitting to set up their command center here. The power of ordinary people was, as Mao used to say, the force behind history. Walking around the monument, I could not help but think also of the heavy cost and suffering the ordinary Chinese have endured throughout our turbulent history. I had finally returned to the place my friends and comrades had marched. Sung, fought, and died. On this ground below me, thousands of hunger strikers had refused food for days. They could feel the life of twenty years slowly leaving them. Happiness was on their minds. Happiness for the ordinary people, their children growing up. They had to close their eyes. They had no strength to look at the sky or clouds anymore. It was the best time. And it was a terrible time. We were young and full of hope. We were passionate about our cause. We were ready to pay the dearest price for a more democratic and free China, because we never doubted that we would win, that our sacrifice would be worthwhile. But how our faith was crushed! One night, tanks rolled down the boulevard of eternal peace. Troops opened fire at unarmed students. And citizens and blood flowed. Overnight, I lost the innocence of my youth and the love of my life. The images of my last days in China came back, each one clearer than the last. I feel that I was going to crumble under the pounding wave of emotions, each stronger than the one before. Standing on the base of the monument, I could clearly see the square, occupied only by strolling tourists. Snapping photos, I had returned, but so had my turbulent memories, and there seemed to be no place for them in the peaceful scene I saw in front of me. And that's all for from the book that I'd like to read. And I'd now like to open up to the floor, and for if you have any questions, and there's a mic going around.、Uh. My question is about the,、uh, the new memoir that、uh, has been released uh, uh, from Jiajian, and uh, certainly uh, seems uh, extraordinary. And he、uh, has his own version of events、uh, that he is sharing with memoirs. So, can you comment a little bit、uh, about uh, uh, how you might have seen his book at the time? I haven't read the book. When I came out to the states to do the book tour, the book was just being released in London.、Um, but I had been、um, together interviewed with the editor of the book, so I was told a little bit about its content. And I think Zhao Ziyang's version was that he was against the troops from moving in, but in the power struggle that he lost to the hardliners, which included. Deng Xiaoping, who ordered the army to come in and crash the student movement, and that was very much the version that we guessed after he was stripped of power. In fact, the moment that Zhao Ziyang came to Tiananmen Square、um, with a megaphone and asking students to leave, with tears running down his face, we thought, now we have the support of. 
the Chinese leadership. We felt that this was the moment that we will go into, we would win. The next day, he was stripped of his power and put under house arrest. I believe that was the moment that we realized how serious the situation had become. And perhaps for the very first time, we thought we might not win the battle in the end. There was a woman who uh, ended up leading the revolt at Tiananmen Square. I can't remember her name. But I was wondering what happened to her and what do you know about her story and how she rose to power and what happened to her? Chai Ling uh, was my roommate. Um, at university, she was the leader of the hunger strikers, and she was later on the commander in chief at Tiananmen Square, twice nominated for Nobel Peace Prize. Um, Chai Ling is today um, internet entrepreneur in Boston. She runs an internet company. Um, thank you very much for your time. I wanted to ask you about the photo from the cover of the book, uh, Tang, and I wanted to ask you about the significance of, you know, what he did and what he stood for as someone who And this is this image, the, the, the tank man, I think has become one of the most iconic image of this century. Um, and this is in some ways when we think of Tiananmen, and a lot of us, including myself, I think of this image, this lone, almost vulnerable, fragile person in front of a long line of tanks. Um, I only saw this image after I came out to the West. Um, and I was very profound when I saw that because I myself had been stopped going out to stop tanks. We had managed to stop tanks from coming into Beijing. And I stood in front of the tank, I climbed up onto a tank and tried to convince the soldiers to turn back and at least not to open fire on the students. So it resonated with me greatly that to me, what this represented in the, in the way that almost amazingly beautiful that we don't know who he is, at least at the moment I believe we don't know who he is and what happened to him. I think it's very much represented this unknown soldier, and the unknown person who was just so bravely and yet innocently stood in front of the tank and it also represented to me that absolute jubilance and confidence that we felt in the spring of 1989 that we could, in fact, do this. We could stand in front of tanks and the tanks would not move on. And, and I think it very much was represented that moment and, and symbolized, I think, it's very much that movement um, and that we, the students, felt that we were able to take on the mighty Chinese government.
believe that there is a, a general um, tendency and general belief that China can progress without political reform. In fact, the Chinese government would very much prefer the progress and the development to continue without having to reform politically. And I think that coverage or the censorship, if you'd like, of Tiananmen Square events for the past 20 years very much represents that kind of thinking. Um, that China has done marvelously economically and in some small ways politically as well. And the Chinese people are living happier, freer lives. And so there is possibly a deal, or feels like there is a deal struck between the government and the people of China at the moment that the economic in, uh, and prosperity has taken precedence over political reform. And I think that event very much represents that kind of desire uh, to separate pol political reform from the economic reform. And also, it has been very much a Chinese uh, psyche from way before the communism that the order and stability is a key to development and that had sprung out from the long history of turbulence, infighting and foreign invasion, etc. So for the Chinese government and has been absolutely first priority to keep the country in harmony and order and they believe that it can be only achieved um, with control from the government. happy to. Um, well, um, to answer your second question first, um, I, I've been traveling back to Beijing to do research for my fiction, um, and also before that, I, I taught Chinese students in China. Um, the, the students today are very different from um, you know, the time we were there, the students uh, as we were. Um, they are very confident. They are worldly and they've grown up in post-Tiananmen China. Um, they experienced only prosperity and opportunity. They can travel freely overseas if you so, they so do wish and they can afford, and they can go study anywhere in the world if they'd like. And China offers them great opportunities and, and possibilities of wealth. And so they are much less interested in politics um, as we did and partially because also they have other outlets to vent their criticism or to participate in the development of their country, for example, environmental issues. And there's a huge youth concern for global warming and environmental improvement in China. And also the youth of China are very 
clued in in the terms of charitable work. Um, if you follow some of the reports from earthquake in Sichuan last year, um, lots of donations came from ordinary Chinese to help the victims of earthquake. And also there's a huge surge of nationalism, which in a lot of times were led by demonstrations dominated by young students um, in the cities. And so these are the outlets that they, are, they now choose to um, exert their, their desire, their will, and their expression. And partly because Tiananmen, for example, is censored by the government, there had been a lot of issues, including Tibet, it's not openly debated open debate of political issues is still rather still dangerous matter. Um, when I go to Beijing, I meet with my friends who, with whom I had shared days and nights at Tiananmen. Um, they now have, some of them had um, worked and studied in the States and now they have gone back to China and work in very prominent positions in private organizations or in the government. And we could have this absolutely free conversation about anything about Tiananmen. We can have a debate. Um, but as soon as the cameras arrive, for example, um, when there was a film crew wanting to film something, nobody would say anything. And, and that is censorship. It's they're still there in public. And, I, and I, to me, that is the current state of China and in terms of politics and the students. And I'm sorry, and your first question, I forgot your first question. The number of uh, people who were victims in Tiananmen Square, the number of dead. Yeah, and as we know, no one knows how many people died in Tiananmen even today. 20 years on, I believe Secretary of State Hillary Clinton had and issued a statement on June 4th um, asking the Chinese government to confirm the number of deaths and to acknowledge the number of dead in Tiananmen 20 years ago. And we do not know how many died. We do not know who they are. We do not know the names. And to me, that is in itself a tragedy and that the death um, were not honored. It's in a great Chinese tradition to honor the dead and to remember the dead. I think particularly this is a, a very sad and a, happening to the parents who lost their children and to people who lost their loved ones. I first visited Beijing in 1997 and have been many times since, and I've witnessed the transformations that you talked about. In your opinion, what's been lost and what's been gained? I'd rather start with what's been gained because what's been gained has been a lot. Um, we had demanded free China. We had wanted a modern China. And today, we have a modern China. Um, we have a China that is economically strong. We have Chinese people who feel confident, who feel that finally, after hundreds of years, perhaps this is the moment to shed that weak man of Asia image to really become a major player in the world stage. And in political terms, we have also seen great development. As I said earlier, hukou had been abolished and people can move freely today. And the state monitoring of people's activities have been 
dramatically reduced. When I was growing up, the strict Hutong committees would always watch over what you, everyone said, and even friends, relatives could turn you in because their lives could be threatened if they did not. And these, all these happenings had vanished. And so the Chinese people don't live in fear anymore, and though the censorship in the press is still there. And I have friends who are uh, dissident writers who, who can visit Beijing, for example, as individual citizens, and yet they cannot um, publish their work in China, nor could they speak to the press. And in one way, that is an indication of a lack of freedom. In another, that is a great leap forward for what China used to be. Um, what had been lost? Um, what had been lost, I think, is perhaps a collective action. I think the desire is still there for democracy, freedom, and liberty, but the action is not there anymore. That there is certain amount of complacency in the Chinese today, um, trading in that enjoyment of economic freedom, economic possibility with some of the political hardship that comes with taking action against, for example, corruption and other social problems in China. Um, so having said that, that you, we do not see the collective action, there are lots of individual heroes who take on corruption in the provinces and taking on sort of environmental pollutions and dumping, for example, and we hear reports of these people all the time. And I, when I travel to, to China, and I meet ordinary people, um, policemen who support uh, underprivileged children in the provinces, and retirees sponsoring um, disabled children. So there are lots of oh, these wonderful things happening at the, on, on the individual basis. The question is where do you see China going? Uh, the generation of Tiananmen, obviously, unfortunately, tragically, so many people were killed in that square. Uh, another set, like yourself, and China uh, really had escaped to the West. Uh, but there must be many that were left behind. Is there a generation that is working its way up through the uh, Chinese and may eventually be the jobs of the next generation. Uh, is the youth today that have this nationalism, uh, are they frustrated by the fact that China hasn't stepped up the stage to be more of a world player as their economic power probably could allow them to be? Which do you see, or another version of China, emerging in the future? Well, that is the $6 million question, <laughs> isn't it? Um, what shape and form will China be in the future? Um, lots of my friends, the, the people who participated in the Tiananmen event, that whole generation, it is now moving up the ranks within China. And as I said, a lot of my friends had returned to China and to work in the country. And we do see changes happening gradually in the Chinese, in their reactions to 
for example, SARS academic and certain international crises. And if we look at North Korea, China's reaction to North Korea today is very different from what China had said three years ago. Um, so we see the changes. I don't know whether that change um, comes from further engagement with the West or to China's desire to be part of an international community or um, perhaps to some degree a new and a younger generation of Chinese moving into the leadership um, element and, and that had brought up the changes. But I do see changes happening, perhaps not as fast as some people would like it, but slowly and surely changes are happening. And I think that is very positive. Um, but how would China look 10 years, 20 years from now? Um, I suspect China would be economically very strong. And particularly if we look at how China is recovering from the recession and how effective the stimulus package had worked in China versus everywhere else, and there's a great confidence that the Chinese model, if there is ever a model of a certain type of capitalism, and is working. Um, but politically, how would China be? Um, I don't know whether anyone would be able to predict um, and certainly, I would not be the one trying that. And I think things do happen in China, sometimes slowly, sometimes, like in Tiananmen 1989, something will flare up, a great movement will occur. And that's also possible. But whatever happens, I believe engagement, further engagement with China would only help for China to develop and progress and, and move into a more of international standard um, country. Despite the economic developments in China over the past 10 years, there still seems to be a very, a very prominent amount of censorship in the communication world, and communication in general. Do you think that economic development will cause uh, sense, uh, sense, sense censorship to open up more, or? or to do more communication to uh, become more open in uh, Chinese society? Or what would, uh, what would be your opinion on that? Well, I think economic development in itself, first of all, has a great impact on liberty and increasing the liberty for the people. As we know, J.K. Um, Gelsberg used to say, the biggest limitation to the liberty of individuals is a complete lack of money. And I think the Chinese government has done a great uh, job at lifting that and therefore creating a certain amount of liberty for the Chinese people. Um, but at the same time, economic development alone is not enough. I don't think it by itself will increase the possibility of political and reform. Um, I think certain amount of debate is necessary and certain amount of remembering and, and perhaps pressure and reminding China that human rights and liberty and freedom, it is something that Chinese people do desire. And I'm sure, although Today, the Chinese people are very content and very happy. When the time comes, no one, no one in the world will reject liberty and freedom.
Thank you. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.